0: Let Me Tell You a Story, podcast number 65. It was the best of times. It was the worst of
1: times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years it ago. Was the age of
0: never mind. It is a truth universally known. Just have a without
2: You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve.
1: Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. I'm going to begin this podcast by reading from Winds of Wyoming. We are in Chapter 17 now. Kate looked at Manuel. Was that what I think it was? She'd heard plenty of gunfire when she hung out on the streets, but that noise echoed between buildings. This was different. Sounded like a gunshot to me, Manuel said. Do you think? Think what? I hate to say it. He sighed. But maybe Mike found his dog injured but not dead, so he had to finish the job. Kate groaned out awful. Sorry, I shouldn't have said anything. She bit her lip, trying not to cry. Manuel cleared his throat. Does anyone else at the ranch know you were in prison? No. He slumped against a tree trunk. I wish I could erase what I did. Oh, how she knew that feeling. Kate let her head drop back onto the pine needle pillow. Truth is, he said, I can barely remember what happened because I was drunk. The only time in my life I got drunk and I can't even remember it. Want to tell me about it? I'd like a chance to tell one person the truth. He paused. But it'd make you sick. He tossed a pine cone at a boulder. If I told you the things I did, you'd get even sicker. But you don't seem like a... Like a, well, you know. A felon? She asked. Uh huh. That's all behind me. So, what changed you? Well, obviously, reform school didn't help. She shifted to get more comfortable, which triggered another pain sharp enough to take her breath away. When she could speak again, she said, Actually, it was an experience I had in prison. I met an inmate who had this peaceful glow about her. Manuel sat taller. What's that noise? Kate listened. Something large was crashing through the underbrush. Maybe it's Mike. Maybe. But it sounds really big, like a bear or an elk. I wish I had a gun. I've got Mike's revolver. She lifted it from under the blankets. Do you know how to shoot? It's loaded. My dad taught me how. He keeps guns at a sheep wagon. He took the gun and stood. Kate's teeth began to chatter again. The slightest tension seemed to set her off. When would it all end? The noise drew nearer. She lifted her head. Manuel gripped the gun with both hands, legs spread wide. Kate could barely see his outline, but she could tell he was trembling. She prayed he'd be able to do what he needed to do. Glimmers of light flickered between the trees. Kate dropped her head back. Mike. Manuel lowered the gun. Mike broke through the trees onto the trail, somehow holding his dog, the light, and the rifle. Kate swallowed a sob. He was going to bury Tramp on the ranch. Mike carefully placed the dog on the ground. There you go, boy. Her tears fell like rain, wetting her hair. He was talking to his dead dog. She could smell the blood. Manuel bent over the body. Where'd you find him? The sound of a muted whimper made Kate jerk upright. Did Tramp make that noise? Yeah. Mike was breathing hard. He's alive, but in bad shape. I found him down at the creek, soaking his wounds. She lay back and spoke to the guy. I'm so sorry I shot your dog. "'You didn't shoot him. The wolves tore him up.' "'But I i heard your shot injured a wolf "'and scared off others by the looks of the tracks. "'The female I found was alive, "'but down after dragging herself a ways. "'I killed her to end her misery "'and to make sure we have one less wolf in these mountains.' "'Manuel stood. "'That must have been the gunshot we heard. "'Wolves. Plural. "'Kate could barely speak. "'Tramp?' Will he? I hope so. Mike's voice sounded weary. He moved close and patted her shoulder. You and Tramp had quite a night. A wave of terror, pain, and fatigue surged through Kate, nearing its peak. She could feel herself reaching the limit of her endurance. But Chap and Sam's favorite Bible verse rode the crest of the wave. My grace is sufficient for you. The sound of shoes shuffling across a tile floor tugged Kate from a deep sleep. Ramsey and Tramp had led the correctional officers to her. They were coming to take her back to Patterson. Kate, honey, wake up. She felt someone squeeze her hand. You had a bad night, but you're safe now. Kate peered through narrow slits. Mrs. D? In her cell? How did she sneak past the guards? You're in a hospital in Rollins. Kate looked around. The peach-colored room smelled like the prison clinic. Well, she tried to talk, but could only croak. Laura reached for a cup on the nightstand. Suck him some ice. That will help the dryness. With using a plastic spoon, she slipped ice chips between Kate's lips. Do you remember honey throwing you? Kate closed her eyes, and the long night spooled across the screen of her eyelids. She nodded. Yes? She remembered honey. More ice? She opened her mouth. Laura gave her another spoonful. They airlifted you to the hospital and took you into surgery right away. Surgery? Kate sputtered her all around the ice. A masculine voice said, That's right. Kate looked toward the end of the bed, where a tall, gray-haired man in a polo shirt and khaki shorts stood, chart in hand. "'I don't know if you remember me, Ms. Nielsen. "'I'm Dr. Wayne Walker. "'We met last night when the life flight crew brought you in. "'I talked with you and gave you some forms to sign.' "'She swallowed the ice. "'What forms?' "'You signed permission papers before we operated. "'He pulled the bed sheet up and pressed her toes. "'Can you feel this?' "'Uh-huh. "'Wiggle them for me.' "'She stretched her toes, "'which felt as though she hadn't moved them in months. "'Good.' Good, he said. All ten are nice and pink. You had a couple wicked breaks and a touch of hypothermia when you arrived. We had to warm you before we wired you together. She frowned. Wires? He smiled. We used a plate to stabilize the repairs. You should be back to normal in a couple months. Although I'd prefer you stay off horses for a while. Laura squeezed Kate's hand again. That's good news, isn't it, Kate? Kate nodded. A couple months, the summer would be over and the tourist season finished by then. She couldn't walk, she couldn't ride a horse, she couldn't drive. She'd have to leave the ranch. But where would she go? After the doctor left, she turned to Laura. Do you think I'll be in here long? Hospitals are expensive, plus the surgery and the helicopter. I, I can't imagine how I'll ever pay for it all. Don't worry about the medical bills, Laura said. You are riding our horse on our property. The ranch insurance will cover everything. When Kate awoke later, Clint was standing in the doorway, a huge bouquet of yellow roses in his hands. She smiled and waved him in. He walked to her bedside. Hey, lady. I was the one who was supposed to take you around to see the sights. Not those crazy life-like guys. She chuckled. If it's any consolation, Clint, I don't remember a thing about the helicopter ride, including the EMTs. He laid the bouquet in the bed and took her hands, looking more serious than usual. Sorry you had such a rough night. I'm just grateful no snakes crawled on me, she wrinkled her nose and shuddered. Yeah, and it's a good thing you didn't land in an anthill or a pile of poison ivy or bear scat or. She laughed. Please spare me the possibilities. He cocked his head. I hate to say I told you so, but if you'd been dancing with me last night, you wouldn't be lying in a hospital bed today. His laugh was harsh. Not knowing how to respond, Kate said nothing. He picked up the flowers. Did you hear about Tramp? Laura was here earlier, she said, but I forgot to ask about him. The vet stitched him up, took more than a hundred stitches, and gave him a big dose of antibiotics. But he didn't make any promises. He said it'll be touch and go for a while. Some of us took turns sitting with him today. Even the Curtis twins are helping. She snickered. Poor puppy. He'll get well just to escape their chatter. They heard a knock and turned to see Manuel peeking in the doorway. Hi, Manuel. Kate motioned for him to enter the room. What a nice surprise. Kate brandished the flowers. I'm headed to the nurse's station to see if they have a vase. He left the room and Manuel stepped in. I, uh, I brought you something. The teenager thrust a small package at Kate. My mom made it for you. He stuffed his hands into his pockets and looked away. I feel so honored that the two of you would think of me. Kate lifted the top off the box. Inside, resting on soft padding, she found a bracelet "'made of multicolored stones and copper beads. "'She slipped it onto her wrist. "'Thank you, Manuel. "'I've never owned anything as beautiful as this bracelet.' "'She blinked back tears. "'Please tell your mom I love it, and I hope to meet her someday. "'And that she has a wonderful son.' "'A huge grin broke across his face. "'She couldn't believe the girls didn't mob him. "'He was a sweet kid. "'Plus he had a beautiful smile and gorgeous eyes.' He raised his eyebrows. You really like it? I do. It's so unique. She twisted her wrist back and forth to admire the stones. And very pretty. He leaned closer. Do you remember our talk on the trail last night? I remember how you helped me get through the pain. I was glad to have you there. He glanced around. I just wanted to ask about when you were in, well, you know... "'You mean about my previous residence?' he nodded. "'I've been wondering about the—' he lowered his voice. "'The inmate you talked about, the one with the glow? "'What was up with that?' "'Oh, yes, Nancy. "'She was a very special lady. "'I met her after I'd been there almost four years. "'Can you tell me more now, or should I wait until you feel better?' Depends how long it takes Clint to find a vase, she said. I'll try to talk fast. Or maybe I'll speak Pig Latin. He won't have a clue what we're talking about. Manuel smirked and settled into a chair beside her bed. She punched the button to raise the head of her bed before turning on her side to face him, her back to the door. One afternoon, when I was sitting at a picnic table, smoking with a group of women out in the yard, I saw Nancy walking on the track that circled it. I'd watched her for weeks. No matter what was going on around her, she always had a smile on her face, always seemed relaxed. My curiosity got the best of me. I handed my cigarette to another inmate, for we never squandered a single gram of tobacco, and hurried to join her. As we walked together, I told Nancy I'd noticed her glow and her peaceful demeanor, which I couldn't understand because she was surrounded by hundreds of cranky guards and angry, volatile women, most of whom were either in the midst of PMS or menopause. She smiled her calm smile and said, It must be Jesus inside of me. I swore and said, Yeah, girlfriend, and Mickey Mouse lives in me. Manuel laughed, but she didn't get mad. Kate said instead she said, there's a Bible verse that says God is love, and whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in him. Kate saw Manuel's focus flick toward the doorway. She turned to see a patient with an IV pole lurch past the door. Looking back at Manuel, she said, how about pulling your earlobe when you see someone coming? So I can change the subject. He nodded. What did you think about her answer? Sounds weird to me. Nancy also told me that when God comes into our lives, he makes us into new people. That sounded good to me. I didn't like myself. He stared at the ceiling. I know that feeling. My friends, actually they'd never been my friends before, they picked me up when I was walking on the side of the road, acted real chummy-like, and got me drunk on purpose. They dared me to do what I did, but not one of them stood up for me in court. They were too busy covering their own backsides. Kate saw him track another person walking by the door. Someone paged a doctor on the intercom. He focused on her again. I guess I'm angry about all that, but I'm mostly mad at myself for killing the antelope. He stared at the floor for a moment, then looked up. Did you ask your friend how God does that? Makes people new? If she'd been able to reach Manuel, Kate would have hugged him. He looked so miserable. She nodded. Like you, I was anxious for her answer, but exercise time was over. I had to wait until the next day to see her again. The moment I did, I grabbed her arm and said, Tell me, she whispered, Directive number seven. I let go because we weren't supposed to touch each other. She motioned toward a table on the far side of the yard and said, I brought my Bible so I can show you God's message for you today. That made me feel special. I think I even walked a little taller as we headed for the table. The lone woman sitting there got up and hurried away when she saw Nancy open up her Bible, which is fine with me. We only had a half hour out in the yard, but she spent the whole time showing me from her Bible how Jesus wanted to come inside my life and make me clean. Just before, Manuel slapped his hand against his earlobe and yanked it so hard Kate thought it might rip off. Clint burst into the room, roses raised high. Great vase stalker Igor returns with kill from underground cavern. Now Igor hunt water, white water, not fire water. Kate laughed and pointed toward the bathroom. Igor find flowing river in cave. Manuel watched Clint stride into the small room. He's a crazy guy. He's a good friend, right, Kate said, a friend you can trust. Manuel nodded and scooted his chair closer to Kate. He lowered his voice, even though Clint was running water in the bathroom. Maybe next time you can tell me the rest of the story. I'd love to, said Kate. I'm just getting to the good part.
0: We're back at Treasure Island, Chapter 18, narrative continued by the doctor. End of the First Day's Fighting We made our best speed across the strip of wood that now divided us from the stockade, and at every step we took, the voices of the buccaneers rang nearer. Soon we could hear their footfalls as they ran and the cracking of the branches as they breasted across a bit of thicket. I began to see we should have a brush for it in earnest and looked to my priming. Captain, said I, Trelawney is the dead shot. Give him your gun. His own is useless. They exchanged guns, and Trelawney, silent and cool as he had been since the beginning of the bustle, hung a moment on his heel to see that all was fit for service. At the same time, observing Gray to be unarmed, I handed him my cutlass. It did all our hearts good to see him spit in his hand, knit his brows, and make the blade sing through the air. It was plain from every line of his body that our new hand was worth his salt. Forty paces farther, we came to the edge of the wood and saw the stockade in front of us. We struck the enclosure about the middle of the south side, and almost at the same time, seven mutineers, Job Anderson, the boatswain, at their head, appeared in full cry at the southwestern corner. They paused, as if taken aback. And before they recovered, not only the squire and I, but Hunter and Joyce from the blockhouse had time to fire. The four shots came in rather a scattering volley, but they did the business. One of the enemy actually fell, and the rest, without hesitation, turned and plunged into the trees. After reloading, we walked down the outside of the palisade to see the fallen enemy. He was stone dead, shot through the heart. We began to rejoice over our good success, when just at that moment a pistol cracked in the bush, a ball whistled close past my ear, and poor Tom Redruth stumbled and fell his length on the ground. Both the squire and I returned the shot, but as we had nothing to aim at, it is probable we only wasted powder. Then we reloaded and turned our attention to poor Tom The captain and Gray were already examining him, and I saw with half an eye that all was over. I believe the readiness of our return volley had scattered the mutineers once more, for we were suffered without further molestation to get the poor old gamekeeper hoisted over the stockade and carried, groaning and bleeding, into the log house. Poor old fellow, he had not uttered one word of surprise "'complaint, fear, or even acquiescence "'from the very beginning of our troubles till now "'when we had laid him down in the log house to die. "'He had lain like a Trojan behind his mattress in the gallery. "'He had followed every order silently, doggedly, and well. "'He was the oldest of our party by a score of years, "'and now, sullen, old, serviceable servant, "'it was he that was to die.' The squire dropped down beside him on his knees and kissed his hand, crying like a child. Be I going, doctor? He asked. Tom, my man, said I, you're going home. I wish I had had a lick at them with the gun first, he replied. Tom, said the squire, say you forgive me, won't you? Would that be respectful, like, from me to you, squire, was the answer. Howsoever, so be it. Amen. After a little while of silence, he said he thought somebody might read a prayer. It's the custom, sir, he added, apologetically. And not long after, without another word, he passed away. In the meantime, the captain whom I had observed to be wonderfully swollen about the chest and pockets, had turned out a great many various stores, the British colours, a Bible, a coil of stoutish rope, pen, ink, the log book, and pounds of tobacco. He had found a longish fir tree lying felled and trimmed in the enclosure, and, with the help of Hunter, he had set it up at the corner of the log house where the trunks crossed and made an angle. Then climbing on the roof, he had with his own hand bent and run up the colors. This seemed mightily to relieve him. He re-entered the log house and set up about counting up the stores as if nothing else existed. But he had an eye on Tom's passage for all that, and as soon as all was over, came forward with another flag and reverently spread it on the body. "'Don't you take on, sir,' "'he said, shaking the squire's hand. "'All's well with him. "'No fear for a hand that's been shot down "'in his duty to captain and owner. "'It mayn't be good divinity, but it's a fact.' "'Then he pulled me aside. "'Dr. Livesey,' he said, "'in how many weeks do you and squire expect the consort?' "'I told him it was a question not of weeks but of months, "'that if we were not back by the end of August,' Landley was to send to find us, but neither sooner nor later. "'You can calculate for yourself,' I said. "'Why, yes,' returned the captain, scratching his head. "'And making a large allowance, sir, for all the gifts of providence, "'I should say we were pretty close-hauled.' "'How do you mean?' I asked. "'It's a pity, sir, we lost that second load. "'That's what I mean,' replied the captain.' As for powder and shot, we'll do. But the rations are short, very short, so short, Dr. Livesey, that we're perhaps as well without that extra mouth. And he pointed to the dead body under the flag. Just then, with a roar and a whistle, a round shot passed high above the roof of the log house and plumped far beyond us in the wood. Oh ho, oh, oh, said the captain. Blaze away! You've little enough powder already, my lads!' "'At the second trial, the aim was better, "'and the ball descended inside the stockade, "'scattering a cloud of sand but doing no further damage. "'Captain,' said the squire, "'the house is quite invisible from the ship. "'It must be the flag they are aiming at. "'Would it not be wiser to take it in?' "'Strike my collars!' cried the captain. "'No, sir, not I!' And as soon as he had said the words, I think we all agreed with him, for it was not only a piece of stout, seemingly good feeling, it was good policy besides, and showed our enemies that we despised their cannonade. All through the evening they kept thundering away. Ball after ball flew over or fell short, or kicked up the sand in the enclosure, "'but they had to fire so high that the shot fell dead "'and buried itself in the soft sand. "'We had no ricochet to fear, "'and though one popped in through the roof of the log house "'and out again through the floor, "'we soon got used to that sort of horseplay "'and minded it no more than cricket. "'There is one thing good about all this,' observed the captain. "'The wood in front of us is likely clear. "'The ebb has made a good while.' Our stores should be uncovered. Volunteers to go and bring in pork. Gray and Hunter were the first to come forward. Well armed, they stole out of the stockade, but it proved a useless mission. The mutineers were bolder than we fancied, or they put more trust in Israel's gunnery. For four or five of them were busy carrying off our stores and waiting out with them to one of the gigs that lay close by, pulling an oar or so to hold her steady against the current. Silver was in the stern sheets in command, and every man of them was now provided with a musket from some secret magazine of their own. The captain sat down to his log, and here is the beginning of the entry. Alexander Smollett, Master. David Livesey, Ship's Doctor. Abraham Gray, Carpenter's Mate. John Trelawney, Owner. John Hunter and Richard Joyce, owner-servants, landsmen, being all that is left faithful of the ship's company with stores for ten days at short rations, came ashore this day and flew British colors on the log house in Treasure Island. Thomas Redruth, owner-servant, landsman, shot by the mutineers, James Hawkins, cabin boy, and at the same time I was wondering over poor Jim Hawkins' fate a hail on the land side. Somebody hailing us, said Hunter, who was on guard. Doctor! Squire! Captain! Hello, Hunter, is that you? came the cries. And I ran to the door in time to see Jim Hawkins, safe and sound, come climbing over the stockade.
1: Women's fiction author Anne Mote has written a novel titled One Love. I'll be reading from part one, which is titled Without Love, and chapter one. The resort resembled an Austrian chalet nestled in the woods. Melinda braced herself as Jude directed their BMW into the valet entrance. He pointed his chin at the car ahead of them. Dane and Jem are late, too. Jude's boss, Dane, held the door open for his wife. Jem extended her hand. Dane kissed her knuckles and then cupped her elbow while she stepped onto the curb before he handed the key to the valet and turned to their car. Jem stood, but her arms began to windmill. Dane turned back quickly, slipped his arm around her thick waist, and kept her upright. He whispered in her ear, and she giggled like a preteen. Oh, I can't believe she wore such a short skirt. Melinda pretended to check her face in the visor mirror one last time. I'm just glad we're not the last ones here. Jude waved at another couple approaching the entrance behind their car. His lips parted, showing a row of white teeth. But it wasn't a smile. He turned off the ignition and opened his door. Augusta wind whipped Melinda's hair around her cheeks. The show is on. Melinda forced a pleasant face as she smoothed the flipping strands. Jude marched to the front of the car. He did look good as he moved confidently on the slushy street. He'd always had a modern taste in fashion and a muscular body. Of course, he worked out three days a week. Nothing interrupted his schedule. Jude approached her door as if he intended to open it for her. Melinda opened the door, jumped out, and slammed it. She didn't need a gaudy display like the one his boss gave Jude could deal with the valet alone. Once inside, Melinda tried not to shiver while she exchanged pleasantries with some of the men from Jude's work. The restaurant smelled rich, like butter and braised meat. You're cold? An accent voice asked the office secretary. Yes, Melinda felt cold. She hadn't brought a coat. They'd rushed to get here. She tried to think of a response but couldn't remember the secretary's name. Thankfully, the woman's attention switched to the man on her right. More frigid air blew into the lobby. Melinda turned. Jude carried her dress coat in his hands. You think of everything. Melinda wanted to show appreciation. She did need her coat. Jude draped it over her shoulders. His hands lingered briefly. She held still. It had been so long since he touched her. I had enough time to get ready. Her husband had not provided the coat for her sake. He did it to show off his efficiency. Come on, Jude, let's get a drink. Dane slapped Jude on the back and Jude's hand slipped from Melinda's shoulders. Dane gave Jim a kiss on the cheek. Do you want some foo-foo drink, my Jim? Something with an umbrella, perhaps? Jim flirtatiously dipped her chin and rubbed his arm. You know what I like. She closed her eyes and let out a little moan. (gasps) Disgusting. Mandy and I will be looking for a seat in the lounge. Melinda didn't bother to correct Jim on her name. Instead, she followed the woman without a glance at the men who headed toward the bar. Several other women followed them. You guys act like you're on your honeymoon, Melinda said as Jim navigated her way through the oversized chairs. Enormous elk antler chandeliers loomed above like claws or teeth. Heavens no, Jim tugged her too small skirt down. Why would we get married and ruin a good thing? I already tried that once. Laughter bubbled out of her. Melinda stubbed her toe and gripped the naughty pine chair nearest her. She took a deep breath. I thought you guys were married. Jim kept walking. Stupid sandals. Melinda faked a smile and took several quick steps to catch up to her. "'Nope, and I don't intend to marry him either. "'Both of our first marriages were disasters.' "'She gripped the edge of her skirt, "'a show of modesty, "'and lowered herself slowly into a plush chocolate cushion. "'I had one of those,' one of the other women joined in. "'Several women laughed or commented. "'Over the next few minutes, Melinda listened while "'each of them added to the conversation. "'Out of nine other couples, four lived together, three were in a second or third marriage,' and two were just casually dating. Melinda was the only one in her first marriage. The night crept. Jude spent more time trying to impress his co-workers than he did speaking to her. She ordered pan-seared chili and sea bass, but it could have been battered fried cardboard, barely able to swallow, let alone taste. She laughed when everyone else laughed and feigned participation all the way to the beginning of dessert. It probably is better you guys aren't staying the weekend. You do seem pretty tired. Melinda looked up in confusion. Several pairs of eyes awaited her reaction. Yeah, Jude answered and pulled her chair out. The chair's wheels made it slide easily away from the table. After an awkward moment sitting four feet from her dish of mocha mousse, she rose. Stay the weekend? Jude's jaw clenched and a vein pulsed in his neck. They could have stayed the weekend together in Tahoe. We'll miss you. Dane put his arm around Jim and drained red wine from a glass script in his other hand. Well, we won't miss you that much. Laughter erupted when he kissed his Jim. Jude's hand pushed firmly on Melinda's back until she stepped away from the table. Obviously, they wouldn't be staying to finish dessert either. See you on Tuesday. Dane held his empty glass into the air and signaled to the server that he wanted another. Melinda stopped and turned to Jude. He shrugged impatiently, grabbed her hand, and pulled her toward the door. Bye, he called over his shoulder, but the sound of the party muffled it. He clutched Melinda's hand until he reached the lobby. Then he dropped it. The sound of drunken laughter faded. Part of her wanted to run away from the crowd. But regardless of the pace Jude tried to set, she refused to walk quicker. When they exited the building, they would be alone. In the foyer, Jude handed his ticket to the attending valet. The young man sprinted away, and Jude craned his neck as though there might already be a sign of their B&W. "'We were supposed to stay the night?' She hardly recognized her own voice. Jude's Adam's apple bobbed, but he didn't turn his head. "'Was that Dane's treat as well?' She leaned forward with raised eyebrows, trying to get him to look her in the face. "'Yes.' He had a we-will-not-discuss-this-finality in the tone of his voice. He left her and walked out into the cold. Melinda felt conspicuously alone in the lobby. The sensation of a dozen praying mantises raced up and down her arms. Things weren't just rocky in their marriage. He didn't want her anymore. By the time the car wheeled round to the front, she no longer cared why Jude did not want to spend an idealistic weekend at a classy resort or that it could have been the jolt their marriage needed. She opened the door and marched across the threshold. She didn't pull her coat closer. She let it flap behind her, the temperature a welcome relief. Her foot slipped slightly and a smiling valet reached out a hand to steady her. Get away from me. I don't need your help. Once the words left her mouth, Melinda couldn't believe she had spoken them. Oh, forget it. Who cared what he thought? She'd never see him again. She stepped past his offered hand opened the door and plopped into her seat. The ice that had shoved into her sandal melted and leaked down between her toes. Jude closed the door behind her. Through the window, she watched Jude hand the young man a tip. They exchanged a few words and the valet's eyes flickered to Melinda. She looked away as tears began to fall. She didn't bother to wipe them away. Jude slid behind the steering wheel. He held his back rigid and his eyes focused ahead with an aloof expression accelerated evenly, turning their car onto the winding road that would take them back to the freeway. Lack of streetlights and dense pine trees made the night seem darker. Melinda hoped he would be the first to offer an explanation, but after several minutes of silence, she realized he was going to ignore the whole thing if she let him. Why didn't you want to stay at that beautiful romantic resort? Money can't be an excuse this time. Dane was going to pay. She needed to hear the words directly from his mouth to make sure. You didn't want to stay there with me. I could barely drag you to dinner, he said. What would lead me to believe you would suffer through two days and a night? You know why. How could this be happening to her? What's the point anymore? You go to work, you come home from work. We never enjoy each other. Occasionally, we look for a church. Most Sundays we sleep in. Is this our life? Is this what we planned more than a decade ago when we promised to love, honor, and cherish? I don't know, Melinda. In the the pause, she heard him take a deep breath. What do you want from me? He seemed reluctant. I have handed over my paycheck to you for 11 years. What do I want from you? You honestly think that bringing home a paycheck makes you a husband and a father? If that is all that's required from a father, we can get that from welfare. Food stamps could be her husband. Jude's breathing came slow and regular. Did he feel any emotion at all? Melinda's arms hung limp at her sides. All the passion she threw into arguing proved she wanted change. He couldn't have any fire in his heart for her, not the way he just sat there. Tomorrow, he would probably get up and mow the lawn, go to the gym, and then come home and watch a movie, alone. Nothing would be different whether she was in or out of his life, no matter how she willed it at this moment. The car clock changed from 10.03 to 10.04. "'I am no longer satisfied,' she said. A changed woman spoke now, a composed, strong woman. "'I no longer need you in my life.' Jude slowed the car to a stop at the light and turned his blinker on. He looked into her face, angrier than she expected. What are you saying? You aren't getting enough? Damn it, woman, you've sucked me dry. You, you, you. Have you ever for once thought about me? Look in the mirror, Melinda. You are not fulfilling me, either. Don't think for a second I'm content with the choices we've made. She lowered her face into her hands. I get up in the morning and I go to sleep at night. He continued, his voice so calm, a sound of monotonous. I know there should be more, but I wonder what's missing. When was the last time I felt any peace at home, any peace with God? He's deserted us. Jude accelerated up the freeway ramp. With his eyes focused forward, he finished. I'm drowning.
0: You can find One Love by Anne Moat online. Jude and Melinda just might need a good dose of quotes like this one by Clint Eastwood. They say marriages are made in heaven, but so is thunder and lightning. Here are some more, some more quotes. More marriages might survive if the partners realize that sometimes the better comes after the worse. It's by Doug Larson. A great marriage is not when the perfect couple comes together. It is when an imperfect couple learns to enjoy their differences. Dave Muirer. That's M-E-U-R-E-R. A successful marriage requires falling in love many times, always with the same person. Mignon McLaughlin. A happy marriage has in it all the pleasures of friendships, all the enjoyment of of sense and reason, and indeed, all the sweets of life. That's Joseph Addison. There is no more lovely, friendly, and charming relationship, communion, or company than a good marriage. Martin Luther. And a couple more. The best romance is inside marriage. The finest love stories come after the wedding, not before. That's Irving Stone. And if it weren't for marriage, men and women would have to fight with total strangers. (laughs) Anonymous. And one more by the same anonymous. (laughs) I told my wife that a husband is like a fine wine. He gets better with age. The next day she locked me in the cellar. And that is gonna do it. We're gonna go to the cellar.
1: But just so you know, we aren't going to the cellar just Steve. So that's it for today. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading.
2: Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at Lyles.com Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting beckyliles.com. Or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca Carey Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.